We've spent the last number of weeks, uh, if you will, laying some foundation for this task of, of learning the skill of studying the scriptures. And it's taken longer than I anticipated, but that's okay. These are important foundational things for us. And it has to do with our understanding of what God's word is. We say it's God's word. What do we mean by that? And, and what are the implications? And so we've talked about a number of things. And most recently, we've, we've looked at what these terms mean and what they tell us about the scriptures. And so with this in mind now, we build on this. We move forward and, and uh, start addressing some of the issues, the skills, the, the, the tasks that, that face us to really interpret anything, but now here in particular, of course, God's word. So um, <clears throat> when we, we come to, to this uh, topic, we have to begin, of course, with what is most basic in our uh, ability to interpret God's Word. Um, we, we already know that it's clear. We already know that there are no contradictions. We already know there are no errors. We already know this comes directly from God through the agency of men. And so our most basic principle that we find here uh, for interpreting Scripture is what we call Scripture interpreting Scripture. Now, our confession speaks of this, and uh, certainly this is a a common term that we hear in our circles. Um, And the idea is simply this. We can't go ask Moses what he meant by the word day in Genesis 1. He's not here. We can't go to Paul and say, okay, Paul, were you actually quoting what was said in Corinth? And then you're responding to it? Okay, et cetera, et cetera. We have all kinds of questions and we can't go to the author and ask them. Now, obviously, we can go to God and ask him to lead and guide us, but how does he do that? He doesn't speak from heaven, of course. Um, and so we allow God to speak for himself, you might say. We let the scriptures interpret themselves. And since there are no contradictions in the scriptures, there are no errors, it's one basic message. This, this is why we see this as the most basic principle. Scripture interprets itself. God is telling us what he means. Now, many places are are very straightforward, but there are others that uh, maybe aren't aren't quite so clear. And so what we we, um, include in this discussion is that when there is a passage that is less clear, we use the clearer passages to help interpret that one. And uh, the principle as, as a whole sounds pretty straightforward, but it can take some work to do that. And uh, we need to understand what God intended, not what he, we think he said, not impose some kind of structure on it, but, but just let it speak for itself. And, um, um, and so that's the basic idea. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say, let me start writing some of these terms down again. Um, that our most basic principle of Scripture is that we interpret it literally.
All right. Now, <clears throat> one of the main reasons, though it's more than this, but one of the main reasons why people speak of a literal understanding of the scriptures is because historically the Catholic Church has taught differently. And, um, for example, in the Catholic Church, they talk about four senses of the scriptures. You read any passage, and there are four levels, if you will, four points for us to learn from it. And the first one is a literal understanding, the historical understanding, the plain meaning, as they would say. Um, But then there's also a spiritual dimension to it, which in and of itself, we wouldn't disagree with that. And in fact, they speak of what they call the tropological understanding. In other words, the moral meaning. What is the moral meaning of a passage? Now, of course, we look for that too, don't we? They also speak of what they call an analogical meaning. In other words, symbolic, which can include typology and some things that we would talk about. And again, we wouldn't necessarily disagree with this. The one that uh, we have most trouble with is then the allegorical understanding of the scriptures. Now, now not that, say, the parable of the sower is actually an allegory, okay, but they take any passage and give it an allegorical meaning. And so, for example, they would say Genesis 2 speaks of Adam and Eve. Adam, of course, was formed of the dust of the ground, and they would say that literally happened, um, at least conservative Catholicism would. And then they would say that uh, God formed Eve from the rib of Adam, and they would talk about how this literally happened, and we would agree with that. But then they would say there is a moral dimension to this, and I don't think we would disagree with this either. For example, Paul does this, um, or Peter does this, when he talks about the role relationship of men and women. There's a moral dimension to all of this. And we could even maybe agree with them on an analogical understanding here that that Adam, the first Adam, points to the second Adam, and Eve points to the church. And so what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, they would say we can find the seeds of that idea in Genesis 2. Okay, we wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. Now, where we would disagree is they would talk about the allegorical meaning, and what is a common view is that... um, As Eve came forth from the side of Adam, so the sacraments have come forth from the side of Christ. And, of course, they believe there are seven of them, not just two. (laughs) So you see what they've done now. They've taken something that, in one sense, is true. Sacraments have been instituted by Christ. But they see that specifically with Eve being formed out of the rib of Adam. And I, I don't see how you can make that connection. So because of this um, very common interpretation of scriptures throughout, you know, for you know, basically a thousand years in, in the history of, of the New Testament, or the, the um, uh, since the New Testament, um, many people then started saying, well, we need to focus on the literal, which was their first step. And we need to do the same thing. Um, Okay, that's fine. Um, But there are symbols, too. There are metaphors, as well. Um, So, for example, um, when we say the Lord is my shepherd, and that we are sheep, that's not literally true. 
okay? We don't have wool and we don't stink and, okay, eat grass and, you know, these kind of things, right? Maybe stink in other ways, but not like sheep, okay? Um, Of course, God is not a literal shepherd. Even when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he he didn't mean he went and tended sheep or, or anything else. And so there are metaphorical meanings. And so uh, some other people would say, okay, instead of using the word literal, let's use the term natural, or some will use the term plain. The natural meaning of the text. Well, naturally, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a figure of speech. Calling us sheep, that's a figure of speech. That's the natural meaning of the passage. It's not literal, strictly speaking. Or it's the plain meaning of the text. Um, and, and this other term is used to, to um, basically encourage us away from allegory. What's the plain meaning? Let's not find some deeper meaning that's not really there. Uh, and so forth. So, um, <clears throat> with all this discussion, you know, what is our starting point? Well, our starting point is here. All right. Now, these ideas, especially I would say this terminology, um, then builds upon that. Um, so, anyway, just a, a few words here then in this way. And so, ultimately, we are not the ones who are interpreting the scriptures. We are letting scripture interpret itself. Now, certainly we have a part to play in that. But in the end, we are letting scripture tell us what it means. We are letting God speak for himself. Now, let me use um, an example here. If you were to receive a letter from somebody, and um, there was a statement in that letter that you did not understand or something to that effect... Um, how are you going to figure out what it meant? Well, obviously, if the person is still living, you can write them a letter back and ask them, what did you mean by this? And they, you can have that interchange. But um, say it was a letter from your grandparents who have died, and you're reading it. It was a letter they wrote to you, say, when you were 12 or something like that. And now you're reading it, and you're like, hmm, I wonder what they meant by that. Well, you can't ask them. And so maybe you go and look at some other letters they wrote to you. Uh, maybe you can even talk to those who knew your grandparents and say, you know, what do you think they would mean by this? Or, you know, whatever it is. And, and so it's the same kind of thing that we're doing here with the scriptures, obviously to a greater level. Um, it's the same basic approach. Um, and so let's let it interpret itself. It's the natural, plain straightforward meaning which includes metaphors which includes symbols which includes even allegory in places Um, but we let the text lead us in that direction okay comments or questions here to this point Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, 
what you mentioned though is important for allegory everything has a meaning a parable has one basic meaning but an allegory like the parable of the sower we call it is actually an allegory and we know that because Jesus gave us the interpretation so the ground means this the seed means that the path means something else you know the birds mean something else everything has a meaning that's an allegory um, and so we allow the text to, to lead us in that direction. And, and uh, in that case, it's pretty straightforward. intend to address this question at a later time okay, I'm sorry. but just to, to say in brief I think our pattern needs to be what is normal for a parable and what's normal for a parable is there's one basic moral message and so therefore when Jesus expands on it like he does with the parable of the sower right yes All right, now, <clears throat> let's do um, some, some practice here in terms of letting the scripture interpret itself. And some of these things are very straightforward. Some things are much more involved. And we might not ever know for sure what is meant, at least in this life. Um, now, an important thing for us to do here is to learn how to use our Bibles. And some of you, I'm sure, have by now. Maybe others of you are... Uh, not so much or whatever but when you see a passage if you have a um, a Bible with cross references or footnotes or if you have a concordance or something like that this can help you trace things and how is it used now of course I do this all the time in my sermons and we're going to do some of that this morning we did some of it extensively last Sunday night uh, what does it mean when it says that uh, God desires all men to be saved? Well, how do we understand that? Well, we looked at a bunch of other passages to, to help us understand. So if you have a Bible with cross-references or a concordance, it, it can help you in this process. And so for mine, hey, I just opened right up here. Oh, it's Psalm 100. Okay, so you know, mine are over here on the right. I got a, a little letters in the text that say, okay, a psalm of thanksgiving. Oh, there's a little A there. So over here, okay, it tells me to reference Psalm 145 where it says the same thing. Okay, or it says, make a joyful shout to the Lord all you lands. All right, well, it, it tells me to reference Psalm 95 verse 1 where it says something similar. Okay, it also has a footnote saying all you lands. Well, that can be interpreted... Or literally, it says, all the earth. Literally what the Hebrew says. So, um, it, it's just, I have the New Geneva Study Bible or the Reformation Study Bible or whatever, you, whichever version you have of it. Uh, but I also have notes at the bottom, of course, it's a study Bible. 
And so I can look here and it says Psalm 100. See, Psalm 95, verse 1. And the note there. <laughs> all, the, all you lands, and here's what they say. As in the royal psalms preceding, the call goes out beyond the chosen people to all the peoples of the earth. God is their king too, whether they're aware of it or not. So, you know, Bibles like this are extremely helpful as we um, seek to have Scripture interpreting Scripture. Um, let, let some people do some of the work for you to, to, to help you in that process. Um, and this one also has in the back a concordance. I just turned open to W. <laughs> okay, and so now here it has... Um, about a dozen references to weeping. Okay? And so if you want a, a topic or an idea, uh, say Jesus wept. Well, let's look at all the different ideas of weeping or, or the term wept. Um, it just has weep and weeping here. But, uh, well, wait, let me keep going. Yeah, here's wept down here. And, and so you can look at those, you know, 20 or 30 different references and learn something. Now, that one's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Others are more complex. Um, so, you know, having these tools uh, are extremely helpful. Uh, but as I've said on other occasions, uh, don't just buy anything. <laughs> don't just use anything on the Internet. Some things are better than others. And if you're wanting some, some direction, I'll, I'll be glad to, to, to give that to you. Um, so, yes, anything Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Now, when I translate from the Hebrew or the Greek, I regularly look at five key translations just to compare. So, obviously, the New King James, but also the ESV, the NAS, the NIV, the New RSV. Those are the ones that I look at primarily. Um, I'll look at the Byzantine text, the majority text. I'll look at the Alexandrian text. If it's in the Hebrew, I'll look at the Septuagint. And I'll just compare these things. All right. Now, the next step is the English. How do they do it? Okay. Well, like Naylene said, I use this. This is one of my sources. I use the NIV Study Bible as another source for, um, you know, these kind of things. I could use Naylene's, but she'd probably get mad at me for taking it. <laughs> I already took your NIV Study Bible, so. <laughs> so, anyway, the point is... Um, using multiple ones is extremely helpful and, and even necessary um, in, our, in our study. Um, a, broader, um, a broader view will give you a better understanding. Um, so, all right. So, <clears throat> let's look at an example here. Let's turn to Numbers and chapter 22. And for now, I'm just going to be very broad here with this example. In Numbers chapters 22 to 24, of course, we have the story of Balaam. And as we read through this, of course, you remember that that Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam says, I'll do whatever 
the gods tell me kind of idea. And in particular, he does mention Yahweh. And um, since he's going to speak against those who worship Yahweh, he needs to be in contact with Yahweh. It's you know, the way a, a pagan prophet would think. And um, so uh, Yahweh comes, you have the, the angel and the donkey speaking, speaking and so forth. And of course you have these different prophecies. And Balaam continually says, look, I can only say what Yahweh tells me to say. So as you read through these things, hey, and, and I'm just going to you know, reference it generally here, um, you, you're like, was Balaam a believer? Okay. <clears throat> um, note, especially in chapter 24, verse 19, it speaks, Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Huh. What does that mean? Or back to verse 17, uh, partway through the verse, A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall arise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and so forth. Uh, these sound messianic. How could a pagan prophet say that? And so an obvious question as you read through this is, is Balaam a believer? Now, this is a a broad section here, three chapters. But if you were to look at some of the cross-references, or if you were to look up the name Balaam and how many times it's used in the scriptures, it's used, uh, I believe it's seven times altogether, um, so let's turn over to Numbers 31 here a moment. And you look at some of those other places. Numbers 31, if you look at verse 16, <clears throat> verse 16 it says, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, uh, Baal of Peor, if you look back at chapter 25, right, that, notice that's happening after these uh, words from Balaam in chapters 22 to 24. So, here we have an indication that Balaam is leading Israel to sin. No true prophet is going to do that, right? Let's turn to the New Testament. Let's turn to um, 2 Peter here a moment. Second Peter chapter 2, and if you look at verse um, 15. 2 Peter 2, verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Aor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he is rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. Okay. Then if you look at Jude, chapter 1, obviously, um, and verse 11. Jude and verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for prophets and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So here Jude references three different things. The point is, as we look at how Balaam is referenced in other parts of Scripture, we're left with the conclusion that he must not have been a believer. Now the opposite can be said for Lot. 
Uh, you look at Genesis, especially chapter 14, and and uh, later there with his two daughters and so forth coming out of Sodom, you're, you're left with the impression that maybe he's not a believer. I mean, look what he's doing. Yeah, God brought him out, but that seems to be more for Abraham's sake than for Lot's sake. Um, and yet in the New Testament, we are told that he was a believer. So that's <clears throat> a similar topic, if you will. Um, but... Um, this can be done by looking at different references to uh, the person, Balaam here in particular. Um, and, uh, and so I looked up here in the back. I did the work for you, but if you're to look up the name Balaam in a concordance like I have here, hey, there are a number of references right there that you can look up. Um, all right. <clears throat> Let's be a little more specific. Let's turn to uh, Genesis 28. <clears throat> Genesis 28 and verses 10 and following. Here is where Jacob fled from his brother Esau after uh, deceiving his father about the blessing. And... Um, it says he left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And um, he came to a certain place, it says. Of course, we know this is, this is Bethel. And he right, lays down and, and falls asleep and has his dream. And in verse 12, we see about this ladder, whatever that was. Maybe more like a ziggurat or something like that. But like the Tower of Babel. He sees it and it reaches to heaven. The angels are going up and down on it. And God's at the top, Yahweh. And we, we're going to actually reference verses 13 to 15 here in the sermon. These are the promises given to Jacob. And Jacob wakes up, verse 16, oh, Yahweh was here and so forth. And, and so he uh, sets up the pillar and, and names it and promises to serve God and that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> now, what does all this mean? Well, the obvious point here is that Yahweh came to Jacob in a dream to tell him that the promises given to Abraham and then to Isaac are going to be given to him. And even though he's leaving the promised land, God is going to bring him back and fulfill these promises. Okay? That's the obvious point, just reading through it. Okay. Now, <clears throat> is there any other reference to this? Well, if you look at it, especially verse 12... If you have a Bible with cross-references, do you have a verse there or passage? Yeah. Okay. All right. There's... Okay. Now, that's, that's the one in particular. Okay. Now... You'll see the cross-references can lead you to places that are the same kind of idea. Sometimes you have something that's very specifically connected, sometimes not quite so much. The one here in particular is John 1, so let's turn there a moment. Now, I'm, I'm guiding our search here a bit, but if you're doing this by yourself, right, you might look at 10 different places before you find one that's actually really helpful to help you to understand. Um, and 
the other ones are, are more, if you will, on the periphery of your knowledge. They're helpful, but not maybe uh, as specific. And so here in, in John chapter 1, we see especially verses 43 uh, to the end. And so here you have Jesus uh, going to Galilee, finds Philip, says to follow him. Philip was from Bethsaida, just like Andrew and Peter. Verse 45, he found Nathanael, said to him, we have found the Messiah, basically, right? And when they say Jesus of Nazareth, Nathanael says, huh? <laughs> Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Philip says, oh, come and look. And so Jesus sees Nathanael coming and says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael says, how do you know me? Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were on the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael is amazed by this and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. He said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. A clear reference back to Jacob. Here Nathaniel is like Jacob, a, a true Israelite, as, as Jesus said. And um, these angels of God are not going up and down a ladder or a ziggurat or something like that, but, but on Jesus. This is the, the way we get to heaven, you could say. Uh, it's looking, looking to Christ. And so now, all of a sudden, this, this message in Genesis 28 to Jacob, you're leaving the promised land, but, but I'm going to fulfill your promises, now takes on a whole different meaning. And we have much more understanding. This is pointing to Christ. And, and, and so um, God's promises to the patriarchs are centered around Christ. Um, so anyway, here's uh, a couple in this way. Um, <clears throat> Any comments or questions before we continue? Yes, Alice. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Um, with your better ones, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, but yes, you need to be discerning. Um, and... Um, You know, it's kind of a, a balance in there. You, you need to trust your source, but at the same time, you have to be discerning on the source uh, that you're using. Um, and in the end, you let the scripture be right our guide to, to, to that. Yeah, Susan. Testament, that 
That's uh, broadly, that's certainly true. Christ is coming and and is beginning his ministry. I don't have a cross reference for anything in my Bible. Um, Yeah, I don't see anything in my footnote or my study notes either. But but we're going to read from Isaiah 55 here in a little bit. And toward the end of the chapter, it says something similar to that. And uh, so, uh, but surely there, I I know there are passages that that would say that. And of course, it is fulfilled when Messiah comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you might be looking for one thing and stumble across something else. And you're like, oh, wow, look at how that fits together. And it helps you to understand uh, even better. Um, All right, let's look at one. Uh, another one here, Psalm 137. All right. Here's one of those passages that you will sometimes hear unbelievers use to say that we should not be Christians. All right. Psalm 137, note verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us, happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Well, that sounds kind of mean, doesn't it? Well, how do we handle this? Well, in my Bible, I have um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight cross-references in those two verses alone. Again, if you have one with cross-references, you may have some similar or some different. Um, And so, let's look at a few of these. Excuse me. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. Thank you. 
Yeah. 